0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am on the line with Kamyar Aziza Danichelli. Uh, Kamyar is a Ph.D. student at the University of California, Irvine, as well as a visiting student researcher at Caltech, where he works with Anima Anankumar, who was a guest of ours back uh, in May of this year. Kamyar, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI.
1: Yeah, thank you, Sam. Thank you for the for introduction.
0: Why don't you give us a sense of your research interests and some of the work you're doing at uh, Caltech and Irvine?
1: Great. Uh my research interest is mainly in an area of uh, like a specific area of machine learning which is called reinforcement learning. Uh this is my my main focus on my main research interest. But uh at the same time I do a lot of other stuff uh in the field uh, like uh, tensor methods. I do optimization, I do um uh, generative models study of generative, generative models i do a study of like um safety and fairness in uh, in the in machine learning because you know uh we build up many theory in machine learning and we build up many um practical like evolutionary methods uh, revolutionary methods but the question is can we use them in uh, in real world and the quest then the answer is like hey you need to make sure that your algorithm is robust your algorithm is like uh safe it's like fair there are a lot of questions you can ask when you take your machine learning algorithm and deploy it in real world so those are the, not a, not a part of like machine learning field that i'm interested in
0: and we've talked about reinforcement learning on this podcast a number of times both uh, from a, a theoretical perspective, as well as uh, applications like uh, game playing, uh, AlphaGo, things like that. Uh, but for this conversation, I thought we would, um, you know, dig into a couple of recent papers of yours, looking at deep reinforcement learning, but also spend some time up front to refresh ourselves on some of the foundational research uh, in this area. So why don't we get started by having you kind of walk us through some of the core elements of uh, reinforcement learning, like uh, deep Q networks, for example.
1: Great, great. That's an amazing way. I really like to, I mean, whenever I t- want to talk about and explain like reinforcement learning, I get super excited because it's like amazing framework and amazing uh, setting that almost, it has like a lot of intuition from human behavior and also it has super nice theoretical analysis and the modeling is crazily great and I really love it and I really like to like, explain to others. It's like, let's, just, let's assume that, I'm, I can give you one example, let's assume that you have a like vacuum cleaner in your house and or your apartment or your place and you just leave it alone and this vacuum cleaner should know how to like uh, clean your, your place. So what it does is like vacuum cleaner goes around If it finds something and if it's like cleans that place, when you come back home, you tell the vacuum cleaner, Hey, you did a good job. And if you, the other day, if you come back home and like you see the vacuum cleaner didn't do anything, you tell the vacuum cleaner, Hey, you did not good it didn't do a good job. It's like you punish it. I'm not like you do not punish it, but it's like this is a term we use. So you give some sort of reinforce feedback to the to the robot, or to the agent is like going around the environment, or let's say even make it easier and like which makes which might make more sense is like a baby, a newborn baby. If the newborn baby is getting closer to like uh, to fire, the baby feels like some harm, and also parents like uh, tells baby that hey, do not do it or like if baby does something good, parents they give the baby like a reward, which is like let's say candy, hopefully not candy, but something like rewarding to the baby and baby learns that the thing that he or she did was good thing. So over time, the baby interacts with the environment, which is like uh, the whole world on parents, and based on the, the decision the baby makes, like going toward the fire or like getting higher grade in the in school, or, oh, I don't know, learning how to, like, when, let's say, assume I'm father of uh, a baby and I'm teaching my baby, like, how to ride a bike. If the, my baby does a good job, I give a lot of rewards. So my baby is like, my kid is like, has this incentive to learn this task faster. So it's like, the baby here or the kid here is like the RL agent. It's uh, interacting with the environment and based on these signals, this feedback it receives, learns how to do a best Job and uh, finds the optimal behavior. So it's a general framework. Why I really like uh, reinforcement learning because it's like almost all the time we have reinforcement learning problems because we are learning. Human learns. Human runs like reinforcement learning somehow. It's not it's not a exact statement, but somehow you can think of it. So reinforcement learning is actually, or we in short we call it RL, is actually a really interesting framework that. It has a lot of root in psychology, a lot of root in neuroscience, and also theoretically we found it from graph theory, which was quite interesting. So from theory we analyzed many things, and at some point we realized that oops is actually the way human behaves. So there was like the nice uh, intersection between like psychology and neuroscience and like uh, machine learning, which was quite interesting. So uh, so now, so this is a motivation why reinforcement learning is important and why we work on reinforcement learning, because if you can understand the way human learns and the way mathematically we can make system to learn, then we can design a robot which can clean a house or which can like, uh, I can find, I can build a robot arm which helps me to uh, like build something or like a grass or something or if I do not have leg, it can help me to walk. Or I can come up with a robot which can help my doctor. And my robot is like, given a patient comes to my like a clinic, I ask doctor, hey, what is the best prescription you can give to the to this uh, the patient? And also I ask the robot, hey, what do you think? And the robot has has seen many other like uh, trials over the world. So the doctor cannot see all the possible experiences that other, other all other doctors they have seen. But if I can have a robot which interacts with all the doctors around the world and I give that robot to my doctor and my doctor can see what my robot thinks and what my doctor is on his own or her own is thinking about that new patient and then combine these two information and give the better prescription to the patient and the patient gets better over time. So there are a lot of uh, interesting, like application and like necessary and interesting application of reinforcement learning in like uh, in real world. So, but the way we model it is there are many ways to model and uh, this setting. I just want to talk about one of them because it's mostly used in deep reinforcement learning. Let's assume I'm playing a game. Okay, when I play a game, let's say I don't know you're familiar with, let's say GTA. Okay. And Grand Theft Auto, yeah, Grand Theft Auto, uh, or yeah, this is one example that I can imagine many people have seen it because either they were like uh, punishing their kids for playing this game like for twenty four hours a day, <laughs> or the kids they play themselves uh, is like you have this agent going around the world, its own world, and like needs to make a decision to optimize its final goal. Okay. So the decision the agent makes at each point is like walking to left or right, or like uh, going to the barber shop, this or going to gym, this kind of stuff. These decisions at the time gives it like some reward. Each of these decision has like long term effect. If my 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 like guy in the in Grand Theft Auto goes to like uh, gym, it gains more power, can run faster. Okay, so. This running faster doesn't have a meaning at the time, but, but the thing is this running faster feature is useful for the agent for later in like few days later when the agent is going, going to run away from the cops, something like that. So the action you're making, the decision you're making now has long term effect. It's that effect of this ad, like action is like appears like later. Let's say if I'm like sitting in my office, I'm going to grab a coffee. If I grab my wallet now, it doesn't ha- doesn't have any meaning until I get to the coffee shop and I wanna pay. Okay, the action I made at the very beginning has a long term effect. Or if like I go I wanna invest in a bank, the bank tells me like, hey, um, if I if you put money now, you're gonna get return like over years. So the action I wanna make has like reward and this reward is like accumulating over the over the whole future. So it's like, uh, this reinforcement has this uh, temporal, like, effect. Like, if I make some decision now, I see the effect of this decision, like, way later in the future, which is, like, makes the problem hard and also makes the problem interesting because the real world works like this. If I break my arm now, I might have serious problems like, the whole life, like, right. my whole, right. the rest of my life. It's not just, I see something kind at that time step. So I see same thing, like, that effect for lungs.
0: And so one of the one of the big challenges in reinforcement learning is the idea that you've got this you've got this huge, in many cases, environment. Like if, you know, if we're thinking about this whole the analogy to humans, you've got the entire world of things that you can do. And so how do we explore how do we decide how we explore all of these possible actions and states that we could end in? End up? Yeah,
1: that, that's actually amazing question, and it's the the challenge for reinforcement learning that we are we we are trying to deal with like for many years is like so now I give you the world and you need to explore this world. You don't know each what each action is doing, so and you don't know if you follow some sequence of actions where you're gonna end up. So that's exactly the interesting question that. You need to explore. Let's say you go to coffee shop and I'm bringing this example of coffee shop. I don't know. It it makes it it more interesting. You go to coffee shop and there is like latte. You have like, let's say five options. There's latte. There is uh, Americano. There is like cappuccino and brewed coffee. And also let's assume that in uh, your local coffee shop, they also sell vodka. And you go to like coffee shop in eight in the morning. Let's assume that you are not Russian or like uh, Polish. And you go 8 in the morning to the coffee shop and you want to get coffee. you for sure not going to order, like, uh, vodka, right? But you don't know that you like latte the most or you like, like cappuccino the most. What you do, you need to know which one you think is the best one now. And, like, you drink, let's say you choose latte. But tomorrow when you go, you're like, I don't know what is the taste of, like, cappuccino. Let's try cappuccino. And you for the first time, you try the cappuccino for the first time. Third time you go, you are you order maybe brewed coffee, and the fourth time you go, you are like, okay, I think latte was good, so I'm gonna go with latte today. So you get latte, and the day after you say, well, I'm not pretty sure how how like uh, cappuccino tastes compared to latte. So next time you try like uh, cappuccino. So over time you you do this type of exploration. You are trying different things, but you do not like try vodka. So you try some actions that they make most sense, right? So this is the way we want the RL agent or robot to do exploration. We don't want to have a RL agent to explore everything uniformly, which is not possible. I don't want to have a GTA or Grand Theft Auto like, agent to just go left, left, right, right, like without any reasoning of like what it does. I want to have the agent which does exploration in such a way that it maximizes the amount of information it gains from the environment while trying to, I mean, it's get, by information. I mean, it can build a better understanding of the world while do not forgetting that the agent is there to collect like more like rewards. It's like those money in Grand Theft Auto game. So my agent wants to, the, uh, my GTA agent wants to go around and understand how the world works while it wants to maximize the understanding of the world or minimize the uncertainty around the world while trying to maximize the reward of the game, maximize the score of the game, or like get, get the game game to be done. You do, if you have a kid playing like GTA, the kid doesn't explore the whole year and then start playing games. The agent while playing games, like try to learn and build a model and see who is friend, what is good, going to gym is good. At the very beginning, the, the, the kid might not know that going to gym is good. Maybe if you go there, they kill you. So something like that. So there are a lot of things, characteristics of the environment that you need to learn, you need to explore, but you need to explore it carefully. So this, uh, I, the way you do exploration is like actually the key factor in reinforcement learning that uh, most of my works are based on like uh, how to do exploration efficiently.
0: And so, one of the simple concepts that comes up in the in reinforcement learning is this idea of explore exploit. And you've talked a little bit about that trade off, you know, via examples. Uh, and then one of the the algorithms that encodes that is this idea of epsilon greedy. Uh, what is that? Uh, epsilon
1: greedy is actually a super powerful and interesting, like algorithm. Even and and it's super simple as well. What it does is like, again, I'm going to talk about coffee shop. You're at the coffee shop, you have these five options, like I told you. You have latte, cappuccino, uh, Americano, and like, brewed coffee and vodka. Okay. So now, let's assume that the, so far, based on the, let's say, assume that you have been in the coffee shop for many times and you know that you feel that uh, you, are, you are a fan of latte the most. You like the mo- latte the most. So your greedy decision, which is the decision which maximizes your your satisfaction, is choosing latte, okay? So epsilon greedy exploration and exploitation strategy says, hey, with probability, like, let's assume epsilon is like 0.1, it says with probability 1 minus 0.1, which is like 1 minus epsilon, I'm going to choose the most greedy decision which maximizes my satisfaction, which is latte. So with probability 90%, I'm going to choose latte. And also I say, hey, I'm also not pretty sure about other, other decisions. I, I'm not sure, very sure about like uh, cappuccino. So what it does with probability one minus epsilon, which is like 10%, the agent randomizes over all these five actions. Okay, so it's like with probability, but with probability 10% it randomizes over all the actions. It means that sometimes it's like choosing cappuccino, sometimes choosing americano, and sometimes choosing latte when it does exploration. And also, it sometimes chooses vodka. So it's like the probability that you choose vodka is exactly equal to the probability that you choose brewed coffee or like uh, cappuccino, which is actually the part that epsilon greedy fails because you know that vodka is not good. Why you choose it again and again? So this is one part that in one of my papers, we address and we resolve this issue, which is quite interesting. So epsilon greedy is like is a powerful algorithm. It does choose like the best action with high probability. The best action, I mean, the best action that agent so far knows is the best. Might not, be, might not be the best. And with probability one minus epsilon, sorry, with probability epsilon is gonna just uniformly choose other actions, even though the agent might know that some actions are really bad, but it does choose them so this is the epsilon greedy and it's been used in like area of deep it 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 was a prominent like algorithm for tr- making trade off between its uh, exploration and exploitation in uh, in area of deep reinforcement learning and one of the famous algorithm which uses this is deep q network so i can uh, just briefly tell like what deep q network does is so let's go back again to the Grant
0: Auto game. Deep Q networks are one of the algorithms for deep reinforcement learning that uh, that really popularized the the space and launched a lot of the efforts to solve video games and things like that. It was uh, it was created at, at DeepMind, is that right?
1: Yeah, Deep Q network was created at uh DeepMind and it was like w- one of the main reason why like. There are many researchers are working on deep, like uh, deep reinforcement learning, because this first paper made it somehow possible to go beyond like a small grid work, small games that theoreticians we were like working on the, on the small rewards, and like this paper was the first paper that we were able to apply reinforcement learning methods on the games like Atari's and like the games, the video games, the games that we were not even thinking that's possible to. Uh, solve using the, using reinforcement learning algorithm at the time. But this paper was like a kind of revolutionary paper that brought a lot of attention to the field of reinforcement learning and people start working on this field. As a, a lot of practitioners and like, uh, scientists, they start working on these games and on this, uh, algorithms because this first paper made it somehow. It, it, it's not, I'm not claiming that this was the, it was like the huge, Gap between the previous works and this work, there were like many works before, like deep Q networks. They were they were able to do many things on uh, Atari games, but this one was the simplest one, which had like simple idea and deployed neural networks in order to solve Atari games. So it was like quite interesting.
0: And so, what's the relationship between epsilon greedy and deep Q networks?
1: So uh, the way deep Q network works is like this, let's get back to the Grand Theft Auto the agent walks around the city and for each action it knows that if it, the agent choose that uh, let's say action going forward or shooting that person it has the follow-up return like if it does something it might win the game or like uh it might get some reward or some money some score so it, it each action has like like upcoming and like forwarding reward so it's like each action has value how good is that action if i kill that person so sorry for my language but if i go to the gym how how much value it has for me how 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 much i get fulfilled if i do this action now so what deep q network does for when it uh, when it plays game is like given the state of the game even given the the, the image of the game which is like like the frame of the game it decides how good is each action? It's like compute the value of each action. Okay. For the time, if I play Sequest, which is like a submarine, is like in the sea, needs, is getting out of oxygen, needs to go on the top of the sea and like get some oxygen. If I see I'm run, running out of oxygen, I know that going up has the most value for me. It's like I, I and staying around the bottom of the sea has lowest value. So, what deep Q network does, deep Q network finds the value associated with each action. Okay. The way it constructs this value there is like the agent needs to interact with the environment. The way the agent interacts with the environment to collect samples and explore the environment is epsilon grid. So what deep Q, and deep Q network does builds the, uh, like builds a model which gives, which somehow gives the value of each uh, decision and with probability like uh, one minus epsilon, it goes with the best decision, the agent so far thinks is the best, and with probability epsilon, it randomizes over the, all the action. okay? So if I run deep Q network on myself, when I go to the coffee shop with probability one minus epsilon, I'm gonna choose a latte, and with probability epsilon, I'm gonna randomize over the all the action, okay? So this is like uh, the way deep Queue network works. It learns how good is each action. It learns the value associated with each action. How good is making the, like action up at, at the current time step? How good is this action? So it learns this function, and when it learns this fun- while this the way it learns this function is like collect samples to satis- to learn this function better and better.
0: And so we can think of deep Q networks as essentially. Uh an algorithm for accounting for the the various values of these actions over a series of steps is that fair? Uh, it's
1: it's fair somehow. It's like it's fair that it's like counting the amount of reward it's going to receive in the future and like somehow in in, in stuff memorizing all of them it re- learns a function which like approximate this
0: counts. And so, in the best
1: case, like there are many theoretical analysis which show that it doesn't do it exactly. But we can for this uh, for the for this conversation, we can assume that it does.
0: Does deep Q networks specify a particular type of neural network architecture, or can it be implemented with multiple different types of uh, of networks?
1: Oh, deep Q network is actually an algorithm and it can be used for and you can anyone can design his or her own like our neural network architecture neural network here are like the machinery we use to solve this problem like but deep q network its own is like is a generic algorithm doesn't care that you're using neural network you're using kernel machine or using uh uh, linear models I mean the objective it, it, it's been used there is generic and can be applied on the, on the variety of different models and can be applied on a variety of different architectures but the first paper used this uh, objective function uh, on uh, using like deep neural networks so that's why we call it deep Q network
2: mm-hmm.
1: so the the thing is like it can be applied on any architecture design for like deep network. I can design my own deep net I, I design also, like, for different tasks, I design different arch- neural network architectures, but I still use deep neural, deep Q network, like machinery and algorithm to, to optimize and learn this value of each decision. Okay. So it's kind of generic algorithm. It's not just for a specific neural network. It's like, it, it, it works. Not, I mean, it's generic and it's applicable to variety of Almost all the neural. networks.
0: Are there specific neural networks that folks tend to use with deep Q networks?
1: Yeah, for uh, Atari games, when we we are like dealing with Atari games, we are using a specific neural network mainly. People have tried different neural networks, but mainly we use the same neural networks that DeepMind paper back in a day, not not back in, like few years ago uh, developed. <laughs> I mean nowadays, like the time is. When you say back in the day, mean you mean like five years ago in the in the field of AI. Uh, yeah. So so far, like most of the researchers, they they use the architecture designed in the original Deep Q network paper, which is like uh, interesting because we we use the same architecture and we design better and better algorithms on the top of Deep Q network. So we have variety of extension to Deep Q networks. We have double deep Q network. We have my work, which is like Bayesian deep Q network. It's like we we use the same architecture, but we are developing better and better algorithms.
0: And and once again, what makes an algorithm better and better in this context is its ability to make better decisions about what elements of the space to explore or what decisions to make at any particular. Juncture so that it's more sample efficient. That's a concept that comes up a lot in here. How, how efficiently are we using our time in the environment to train a, an algorithm?
1: That's a super interesting uh, point that you brought up. Is I don't I want to learn the optimal behavior for let's say playing game in number of interaction with the game, right? I don't wanna like play a game for twenty five billion years in order to like <laughs> by game I mean the simple let's say game punk or game and sequest. I don't wanna play this game for like twenty five billion years in order to be able to fight years I mean like time for the for the for the for the Atari game. So I don't wanna play I wanna like play these games for like I don't know half an hour. By hour I mean uh but uh, this time I'm talking is like the time that actually you need to play that game. It's not like uh, the time that your RL uh, agent is going to use. It's going to be the number of in- interactions with the environment you have. You don't want to have the number of times you play the game. You don't want to be like 20 billion in order to solve the game. You want to play this game 100 times and be able to learn, learn it. You, or you want to play right. this game like 200 times and being able to learn. So the sample complexity is really issue in reinforcement learning. And your the goal mainly is to design an algorithm which makes the optimal balance between exploration and exploitation and minimize the sample complexity or some other notions that we call regret, which is like you don't want to lose a lot before getting to the good uh, performance. And so, an-
0: an- another thing is that these environments, you know, they can effectively have like, you know, local optima, meaning you could going back to your Starbucks coffee shop uh, example, you know, you can kind of get into a rut where you, you know, you settle on the, the latte and that's what you choose. But, you know, you don't know that in one particular day, you know, you, happen to order the cappuccino, the person behind you also orders the cappuccino and you find out that you're soulmates and like we're destined to be together. And if you didn't order the cappuccino, you would have never have had that experience. Like you, you know, the games, these environments are so dynamic that unless you're really careful about the way that you explore them, you miss opportunities
1: yeah it's like you're totally right it's like these environments are super complicated and like the dynamic is like weirdly complicated and that that's a, that's a part that makes the whole our life really hard and also interesting so like if the, the setting might have a lot of weird and complicated situation and it makes me to explore all of them okay but if i'm gonna for the first time I go to coffee shop, I don't care that much that there is a person behind me is gonna be my soulmate. But if I go to coffee shop and I learn that, which coffee actually I like, then I'm when I'm certain, then I start to explore other stuff. I see who is behind me. So for example, first time I came to United States, I was not able to speak English very well. So when I went to coffee shop, I was like, just focused to get my coffee and pronounce things correctly. And like, to say my name correctly and be ever and pay correctly. And but nowadays, when I go to the coffee shop, I just uh, while ordering coffee, I talk to the person behind. Me, okay, so at the over time, when I get more confident and confident about the state of the environment, the way I need to make a decision, I start to do more complicated exploration. So it's like uh, the way human does. And I was like when I first came to the United States, as a person who was not speaking English before coming here. So I had this experience that when I start going to coffee shops, I was not even care who is behind me. I was not, I was just focused to talk to the lady or the person, the guy there, and just uh, make my mission accomplished. I wanted to just order my coffee and make this day, task done correctly.
0: And so you've got these two different metrics for what makes a good algorithm. One is its sample complexity, sample efficiency. The other is the degree to which it fully explores the environment
1: there are many terms uh, but for simplicity let's uh, we all let's call it like sample complexity like how many samples i need to come up with
0: a good strategy okay so in other words what, I, what i'm hearing you say is you can kind of boil all of that stuff down into sample complexity at the end of the day whether it's yeah. uh you know it's the algorithmic, like the computational element of it, whether it takes a long time to converge on anything or not, whether it takes a long time to figure everything out or not. But all of this stuff is ultimately related to the sample complexity.
1: Yeah, all of them are happening. Like the goodness of the sample in the sense that I get lower uncertainty about my, my world and also how much that knowing that sample is going to help me to come up with a better like strategy or better decision. This combination drives me to come up with the sample complexity.
0: And so with all that in mind, maybe you can walk us through a couple of your uh, papers on this topic. You know, one of them is the one that you mentioned earlier, the Bayesian Deep Q Networks. What are you trying to do there?
1: Yeah, the Bayesian Deep Q Network is actually quite interesting. I really like that work it has uh, has some theoretical like uh, guarantee about the sample complexity but also it has interesting behavior in like uh in real but like, on atari games. let's go back again on the coffee shop example epsilon greedy what we we're saying is like is gonna choose latte with high quality and randomize over all the actions all the other decisions uniformly right so epsilon greedy is also gonna choose the the vodka with same number of times that it's choosing other like cappuccino or brewed coffee. But the thing is, what it do, what is happening is like, it doesn't care that how confident you are about the other action. It just cares how much information you know about the best decision, which is like latte, okay? So even for deep Q network, deep Q network is like computing the value of each action. If the action related to the vodka, it has a really low value, the, the, the epsilon greedy action is gonna choose that. Okay? So what we do in deep Q network, we say, hey, instead of just estimating the, by, we do it in the Bayesian deep Q network is, we are saying that instead of estimating the value of each action, how good is, is each action, also estimate how confident, how confident you are about the value of that action. Let's say I'm really confident that the value of like the, the latte is like high, but let's say I'm not confident that the value of the cappuccino is high. So I have I an have estimation of the value of the cappuccino. I know how cappuccino should be good, and I also know that I'm not that certain, okay? So it's worth trying. So if I know that I, the value of the cappuccino is like high, but it's not as high as latte, but I'm really uncertain about this value, like how good is the uh, cappuccino, then I would like to try it, right? Mm-hmm. And also, if I know the value of the vodka is really low, and also I know that with high confidence I know that the value of vodka is low, I'm not gonna ever like try it, right? Right. So what B- deep sorry Bayesian deep Q network does? Bayesian deep Q network is like an algorithm on top of deep Q network, but it says instead of estimating just the value of each action, also estimate how confident you are about each action. And when you want to make a decision, see how how good is the value of that action and how much you're confident. And if you are not confident about the action with, with high value, let's try that one. Okay, so it's like what it does is like the exploration doesn't happen in epsilon greedy setting. The exploration happens in a setting that it tries to maximize a combination of the uncertainty and uh, expected like a goodness of that action. If the action we, the agent thinks is good, but the agent is certain about that. But there's another action which is a slightly worse, but you are really uncertain about it. You want to try that one. Let's put it this way: you go to a coffee shop, you go, you always get latte, and you never got like a cappuccino. But your grandma every day talks about cappuccino. Okay? When you go to a coffee shop, you have you. You believe that the cappuccino has high value because your grandma is always talking about it, and but you never tried it, so you have a gigantic uncertainty about it. Okay, but still you love latte. So at this situation, you better to choose like the, the cappuccino because you think is a really good drink. Is not as good as latte you think, but you are not sure that how good it is. Maybe it's way better than latte, but you don't know. Okay, but Mm -hmm. in expectation, your grandma, the way your grandma explained it to you, you think that it's a good drink, it's comparable to latte, but it's it's still you like latte a bit more because, but based on your grandma's like explanation, you don't know that cappuccino is how good it is, but you are roughly speaking, you know that it's not, you believe that it's not better than latte, but you are not uh, certain about it. So you just try that one. So it's like kind of a balance between like, uncertainty over the your belief about the value of each each decision and makes a decision based on the, the expected value of each action and also uncertainty over that
0: uh, expected value. And so are you, in the epsilon greedy, you are choosing your primary, the, the one that you believe has the most value, at a probability of 1 minus epsilon, and then say you've got your five choices, the probability of you choosing one of those other ones is epsilon over four, right? Yeah, epsilon over five. Epsilon so five. over five. I randomize over the whole thing. Oh, you randomize over the whole thing. And so that was my question with uh, with the approach we we're describing where waiting, are you, are you doing this confidence uh, waiting over just the other uh, four sure. or over all of... All of them. you just of them. kind of evaluating each of them based on this confidence-weighted metric. Exactly. So I just, for
1: each action, I have estimated value and also I have uncertainty. And I what I do, I put, I so somehow it's like I have a belief about each action.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. I am like, I know how good it's gonna be, but this goodness is not a number. It's like uh, somehow a distribution over each action. So I'm like, when I say I believe that this should be okay means that with high probability I think it's good right so for each action I have a distribution about how good each action it is and the mean of this distribution is going to be my expected like uh, expected like value and also this distribution has some variance is going to be somehow my uncertainty okay so for each action I have a belief and my belief is somehow a distribution over the over the goodness of each action or going to be uncertainty over each action.
0: And thinking about it in terms of distributions is where the concept of Bayesian comes into play.
1: Exactly, exactly. So this distribution is like my belief, my posterior belief about each action. So if I know the posterior belief about each action, what I can do for each action, I can sample out of this belief. I get some, like, uh, let's assume that for latte, I am... My expected me, expected value is like five, and my variance is like one. It's like I'm somehow uh, uncertain that is between four uh, to six. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what I do, I sample a number between four and six, and I assume that the value of the 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 latte is that number. I mm-hmm. do the same thing for other uh, other actions, like for latte For latte, I know that my grandma told me the value of the latte. Sorry, for for cappuccino, my grandma told me the value of the cappuccino is like four. But I'm like, my uncertainty is like the variance of my She thinks it's higher
0: than the latte, so maybe like eight. No, no, no. She told me that the
1: cappuccino is good. But for me, she thinks the cappuccino is the best. But for me, I think the latte is the best.
2: Ah, okay, okay,
1: okay. So for me, cappuccino is like four. I never tried it. My grandma told me. I put four for cappuccino, but the variance for cappuccino is like ten. So the cappuccino can be between fourteen to minus like uh, six. Okay? Got it. Got it. So okay. if I sample, there is a high chance that the cappuccino is gonna get a number be- above like five. If the you know, cappuccino gets a number above five, I'm gonna above six. I'm uh, I'm gonna choose cappuccino. Mm-hmm. So this is the way I do exploration. This is called Thompson sampling. There was a guy back in like uh, 1930s and like, he developed this idea of sampling. If you have a belief about the environment, you sample out of that and just do, just act based on that sample. Also in uh, psychology, there's a uh, literature is called, they, call it, they do not call it Thompson sampling, they call it Bayesian sampling uh, because like, they are from a uh, psychology uh, background, so they, they define their own terms but they have a cool uh, setting that they say even human, that's why I bring up this uh, coffee shop example, Is like they say in psychology that human also does Bayesian sampling. The human come, come up with a belief about the world, belief about each decision, and sample out of that belief and do the thing, the human thing. It's like the human randomizes over its behavior. Mm doesn't go always with greedy. We do not always get a lot We sometimes randomize. The way we do randomization is sampling through our belief. I mean, this is a claim in psychology. I'm, I'm not making this claim. Right. I'm just fitting the thing they say.
0: I'm not sure how exactly to articulate this, but it strikes me that there's, you know, one of the important assumptions in here is this idea that, I mean, I guess the whole idea of sampling, right, that you can just pick a number, and even though relative to the distribution that number could be an extreme outlier we're still just going to use this number as to make our decision like how what tells us that we can do that
1: so that's an interesting question so if i draw samples and one sample is suddenly is extremely high and like the question is should i go with that or not
2: so
0: and so I guess maybe to start to answer my own question, are we just kind of reverting to law of large numbers here? If we do this enough, you know, we're basically sampling around, you know, we'll kind of converge to our distribution.
1: It's slightly related to that, but it's not exactly that. Here it's uh, it's about concentration of the measure mainly. It's like like if I have an uncertainty about the latte and cappuccino and others, if I sample them a lot, then I am going to be sure how good they are, right? Mm-hmm. If I'm, let's say, in the like uh, not realistic world, I'm able to drink latte 10 billion times, and I'm allowed to drink uh, cappuccino 10 billion times, then I can say which one is better. Mm-hmm. right? So it's like, over time, my belief concentrates over its actual value. Mm-hmm. Because latte, for me, has a goodness. I don't know what is that goodness, and I need to Tried many many times to understand what is that goodness and if you I you allow me to drink latte billions of times then I can over time I can like like shrink down my uncertainty about uh, about latte and at some point I say hey latte is actually the best even though it might not be bad for other people for, for me let's say is like when I drink latte a lot and cappuccino a lot over time I am certain about how which one is good
0: so it's not just law large numbers because we're we're not just sampling a lot from this distribution to learn its parameters we're also uh, we're also updating the distribution the parameters of the distribution as we go along to reflect our increased confidence
1: yeah and the, here is like the distribution i'm gonna so my belief is my distribution right so this distribution at the very beginning is has a has a like fat tail But over time, when I collect more samples, I can, I'm gonna make sure that. So, what is this distribution? This is a distribution over the value of latte, right? Right. So, the value of latte in expectation is a fixed number. So, it's five, right? So, but I don't, I'm not sure about it. So, I am uncertain. So, this uncertain, so this distribution represents my uncertainty. And over time, when I collect more samples, I'm reducing my uncertainty. And this uncertainty is gonna be shrink down. And over time, if you, give me, if you allow me to collect more samples, I'm going to shrink down my uncertainty to zero and claim that I exactly know what is the value of the latte. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be like a measure of uncertainty. Like if, I, if I get more experience, if I try the same thing many times, I get, more, I get more certain about it. It means that I reduce somehow the variance of my belief about that, uh, that action mm-hmm. or that decision. So it's gonna reduce that uh, the uncertainty over the world for me. So and uh, it's been like a that if you use Thompson sampling, you actually balance between nicely balance between exploration and exploitation, and you actually get a, a like ordered optimal like um, sample complexity.
0: So a part of your work then is applying this uh, this Thompson sampling. Algorithm to the to deep Q networks and does the the analytical results follow as well into the reinforcement learning realm?
1: Yeah, it does. Uh, so is, I'm not applying Thompson sampling on deep Q network. I'm extending deep Q networks to have this Bayesian property. Deep Q networks, okay. they, they as I said, they just compute the value of each action, but Bayesian deep Q networks. Use the same machinery as deep Q networks, but instead of computing the value of each action, it also not only estimate the value of each action, it also estimate the uncertainty of that value. So it's like collecting more information. Right. And uh, on, on the other hand, for exploration, Bayesian deep Q network doesn't use epsilon greedy, but it uses Thompson sampling, mm-hmm. which is like uh, super interesting. I mean, the first time I applied this algorithm, this method on the on the Atari games, it was like when I was showing uh, this result to my colleagues, no one was like uh, like believing that what's going on because it was doing super great, like thousand times better in the performance, like a hundred, hundred times better in sample complex. It was like crazily good. It can learn the game that like... Uh, Deep Q network learns in like I don't know 100 million time steps. It can learn it like like less than five million or less than 2 million for some games. It's crazily cool. I really it was like um, interestingly interesting observation and made us to think more about exploration. If you look at the literatures in the deep reinforcement learning, almost like 99 nine, more than 99% of them they use epsilon greedy. There are few of them they are using more sophisticated exploration algorithm and here we show that if you just instead of doing architecture design, if you just come up with better exploration strategy, you're going to gain a lot.
0: Has that uh, result stood the test of time? Is this still state-of-the-art for certain games or has it been extended by other folks? Like, Where does it sit in the landscape oh, I- of uh, extensions to deep networks?
1: Oh, interesting. That's an interesting question. It's like after deep queue network, there, there have been many, many extensions to design better, uh, cost function, to design better, like sampling, sorry, the design better handling of the memory. There are a lot of extensions that the advanced deep queue network. Okay. Mm-hmm. But they all, almost all using epsilon greedy. Okay. Right. So we are not comparing against those advanced architecture. We are just saying, just take a simple deep queue network. And in soft doing epsilon gradient, do, uh, do top Tops of sampling. sampling. And we show that it does way better. And also we show that it does better than many, many other algorithms, many, many advanced algorithms. Mm-hmm. But we did not compare against those algorithms that they are advancing the architecture or advancing some other like uh, rewarding functions. Because the point right. of this work was like, hey, if we just change the exploration algorithm, what's going to happen? If those algorithms, those algorithms that are advancing deep Q network, if they, if I applied uh, this Thompson sampling on those algorithms, I'm going to get like better performance.
0: Got it. Got it. So you kind of left it as an exercise to the, to the reader to take their favorite extension to deep Q networks and uh, try this as a way to get even better sample complexity.
1: Yeah. It's like just, this is like the way we say to do. Exploration and exploitation instead of epsilon greedy. If you have a sophisticated like uh, deep reinforcement learning algorithm, you if you're still using epsilon greedy, if you apply this one this approach which has a theoretical like analysis and also theoretical guarantee, you hope to get way better performance.
0: What you've done here is you've proposed an alternative to epsilon greedy based on Thompson sampling, so based on uncertainty weighting. Uh, Presumably there are, you know, other ways that you could change the explore-exploit mechanism further. Uh, how, how well explored is that space? How, has, have a lot of people proposed different algorithms for dealing with exploitation?
1: That's a super interesting question. Is From land of theory, the, like the main question we are asking almost every day is to come up with the better exploration and exploitation algorithm. From the theory land, we developed a lot of nice, amazing, and sweet—I would say—algorithms. They they balance this exploration and exploitation for different settings. Okay, so theoretically, this this area is nicely studied. There are a lot of rooms to ex- explore more and like to prove and like study new things and like uh, find the optimal way of exploration. But the thing is extending those methods even I have a few like a uh, theoretical way of doing exploration exploitation in the theory land but the, 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 it's not easy to extend those ideas and those settings to deep neural networks okay So from the theory we have a lot of algorithms and we have a massive amount of studies that we know how to do uh, exploration exploitation. To get some sort of order optimal like sample complexity. But the problem is like those algorithms are not easily extendable to deep reinforcement learning.
0: Is it, is it simple to explain or give an example of an algorithm that isn't easy to apply or how or why they tend to break? So
1: the one, the, one of the major portion of the theory land in reinforcement learning is like model based reinforcement learning what we do is like we literally learn become we we, we we literally learn the model dynamics. Okay. For each state, we store the transition from each state to another state. Okay. If I'm receiving I'm I'm going to coffee shop, I get a latte, and after that I'm gonna go back, right? So we need to store all these possible like transactions and transitions going from one situation to another situation. We need to store all these things and do the opti- our, our optimization on the on this gigantic gigantic space of like possibilities. Okay. Okay. So it's not possible to store like all these things in the memory and like uh, do your computation. It's like kind of not possible. And also, it's like most of the algorithms we designed for. In the area of like, uh, theory, theory, theory from the theory land, they are, we, we always, not always, most of the time we were like really concerned about the worst case scenario. We want to compute, we want to come up with the algorithm, which no matter what is the model is going to perform the best. Okay? okay. So it makes almost all the algorithms we are, we developed so far, makes all of them such that they are the best for worst case scenario, they, because they want to provide the theory. <laughs> right, right. Why this is the case? This is the case because we are going to provide theoretical guarantee, right? Right. When I say this algorithm for sure works, it means that for no matter what is the world, what is the environment, it should work, right? But that so doesn't mean
2: thing. it's
0: that doesn't mean it's practical for yeah, exactly, any given exactly. sense. Right.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Those are like the algorithms that they give you bounds and they give you like a theoretical. Prove that they are gonna work. Okay. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, if you know that your environment is not that bad, is not the adversarially chosen, or is not like the worst case scenario ever can happen to your algorithm, then you can come up with a better and like more sensible algorithm. Reinforcement learning is kind of young. We need, we don't, we need, we need many, many more people to spend time and do And build up the theoretical analysis of reinforcement learning. So we are like the community of deep reinforcement. The community of the theoreticians in reinforcement learning is not as big as the. I cannot even say like it's like the proportion is almost getting to zero if you look at the number of people they do theory of like reinforcement learning compared to the people they do empirical study of reinforcement learning. This ratio is like super small. You cannot even see (laughs) theoreticians. which is like, I'm not, I mean, it's both nice and also is a concerning. We should do both.
0: And so just to make sure I understand the first of the two impediments you mentioned, it is that in uh, practically speaking, the, for, with deep reinforcement learning models like Deep Q, they make uh, simplifications that lend themselves to, uh, you know, practical concerns, computational concerns. And so for example, They uh, they are looking at um, they're kind of rolling up the value into a single state, if you will, or element, if you will, whereas some of these uh, algorithms that are, you know, you could argue are more optimal. You know, they may be looking at a wider, you know, wider set of observations of the state that you couldn't really operate on practically. Is that what you're kind of getting at?
1: So they the the more sophisticated algorithms they design more sophisticated cost functions. So they are like they are designing the advancing the objective function that DeepQ Network model is solving.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's like they are advancing that. And the idea behind DeepQ Network was not giving like the best algorithm. They Deep Q Network came out to show that it is possible to play games. It doesn't claim that it's the best, and the, the g- aim of that uh, work from DeepMind was not hey, we are doing the best reinforcement learning algorithm. They wanted, they just wanted to show that hey, it is possible to use current algorithms to, in order to beat human or like in order to learn simple games.
0: And a big part of that possibility was the computational feasibility. Yeah, they
1: didn't. Yeah, they didn't yeah. care that much about like compute, like sample complexity. They didn't want to minimize the number of Samples that the agent sees. they mm-hmm. wanted the, the main goal was hey we want to outperform like um, other algorithms and we are gonna outperform other like human that was the goal behind the nature paper they had was like hey this is the ca- case that you can come up with the algorithm which does better than human in uh, in certain games
2: mm-hmm. Or let's
1: say for AlphaGo like the Go game you do not care about the damage about the number of samples that you're uh, like, goal players, like, your agent sees. You just, at the end, want to, like, like win against the best goal player. Right, right. So it's like, this is really important, this is really interesting to do, to, to be make it feasible for first time, but after that, you need to de- design algorithms They do the thing that reinforcement learning actually requires, it's like, reducing the number of samples, like, learning better policy. So they made it feasible, the rest is gonna be like, first, make it better. By make it better, it means like come up with a better sample complexity, come up with a, a better value estimator. I'll, in the second work that I, I want to talk is like I, you can easily show that the DQN objective is actually biased objective function. So you better off not to do it if you want to be really serious in reinforcement learning. You better like do something else than deep Q network. But if deep Q network is the only thing you can do, just go with it. If you can't, I mean, if you're able to do better, it's better of not to do deep Q network because the cost function is easily biased and it can, it can screw you up.
0: So elaborate on that. You said the second cost function? No, in the second work that I uh, ah, I'm right. get a chance to talk about here. In that second paper, walk us through the results. So you started with looking at the cost function for deep Q networks.
1: So I started to looking at the cost function at Deep Q network, and I uh, have many uh, friends in uh, from theory lens. They have many amazing papers and astonishing papers. They analyzed back in like like ten years ago or twenty years ago that they analyzed these uh, cost functions. That one of them is being used by Deep Q network, and they analyze this cost and they show that hey, they are biased. And also there is another work which shows that. Like For any function approximation method, there is a subset of problems that if you run this uh, uh, function approximation method, they either diverge or are biased. So it's like there is no hope that you can get a algorithm which is like uh, you, you think that it's, it, can, it can do something reasonable almost everywhere. But the hope is to, that they do not break like uh, in the like simple settings. So if you look at the Deep Q network objective, it's like it minimizes two terms where you just care about one of them. The second term you don't want to minimize, but it naturally minimizes, okay? And also it has some other issues of like, uh, like it, it somehow looks at, instead of re- like, um, averaging the errors, it just always looks at the maximum error and like back that maximum error which is not the thing you want if you have a Gaussian random variable you don't want you don't care about the max it, you care about like its mean but the, the thing that a deep q network setting passes through its backpropagation is actually the max of the sample which is not the thing you want so it's kind of like biased in many many different senses and the question is if it's biased and if we know that any function approximation method can be biased or divergent, can we do anything for that? That was the question I was asking myself when I started to work on the second work, which we call it Generative Adversarial search, or in short, we call it GATS. Probably you have watched the movie Gatsby. So the name is, has some relation to that guy as well. But yeah, the, the algorithm is called GATS. And it's trying to address the fact that if the if I use function approximation for reinf- deep reinforcement learning, and if my function approximation is biased, can, can I do anything with respect
0: to that or not? And presumably you found that you could do something using uh, a generative adversarial network-based approach.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting idea. So there's a line of research in psychology which says, when human wants to make decision, it forecast what's gonna happen in the future. Or people say, imagine I would, uh, I would like uh, avoid using word imagine, but I can, I would say human like when I wanna go to coffee shop from my office, I just imagine, like imagine or forecast or like predict what's gonna happen in the future, right? I'm, I'm I can, I can think of like going there, talking to the uh, coffee man, and order and pay and think about what I'm gonna get and come back. Like I'm, I can imagine and like think about it, okay?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So this is like a line of uh, research in like uh, psychology which says sometimes when human makes decision, human builds the, the model of the environment, model of the world, and in that world does some analysis. It's not always human does analysis based on just observation. When human interact with the, the environment, with the world, it has some model of that some abstract model of the environment and the world in in his or her brain. Okay, right. I mean, maybe it doesn't make sense, but I think to me it makes sense because when I'm gonna do something, when I want to plan for future or for my like like a trip of I want to do a road trip, I plan everything. I I think of what's gonna happen, what are the situations, all these scenarios. I check all of them in my brain. I do not start my a road trip, and then see what's gonna happen. I just plan everything.
2: Okay, mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: so this is a thing that we they say. Oh, oh, of course, there are like many decisions we do not plan for. Like, let's say there's a mosquito, it just bites us. Like, we do not plan to just uh, scratch that part of body. It just happens. So, but part of it happens through this uh, planning, through like the 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 model of the world that we have in our brain. So we were saying, like, so let's just, let's. Get some idea from this part of psychology and also see what theory tells us. Theory tells us that function approximation, like, uh, is, uh, can be biased or diverse. Okay. So now if I have a, let's say bias, like, value function. Okay. And if I want to use it, and also if I'm able to learn the model dynamics, the, dyna- the, the way model works, I can build the model of the world, right, in my brain. Mm-hmm. Or somehow the agent can, based on interaction the agent has with the world. Here, by world, I mean let's say Atari games. Given interaction that the agent has with the Atari games, going left, right, up, and shooting that kind of things, it can learn that given the current situation, if it does some sort of sequence of like decisions, what's going to happen in the future. So, in this work, we use the the. Uh, uh, an interesting framework out there which is called generative adversarial networks. This uh, met these methods they are like used to generate images out of like uh, random noises. So they are like kind of generative models and we use this uh, machinery to be able to make ourselves able to like, come up with a model of the world. So now given the samples, we designed an algorithm, And a neural network, which is like able given like uh, current frame of the Atari game, is able to to tell you what is gonna be the next twenty frames. If you follow up down down up up some sequence of action, Mm -hmm. it's able to tell you what actually is gonna happen in the future, which is quite interesting. So if I am able to see like twenty steps from now, okay, then I can say, hey, whenever I'm gonna make a decision, I just see. All possible, all possibilities from now in 20 steps in my brain. And then in the leaf node, so it's gonna be, I'm gonna co- construct a tree. I say, hey, if I am at the current time step, if I am my agent, my like uh, my Atari agent is at some location in the game, if it choose action up, where it's gonna go? If it choose action down, where it's gonna go? If it goes forward, where it's gonna go? So I can ask my, this generative model, because it's generative dynamic model as a short like GDM i can ask gdm hey if i if i'm at this kind of state and if is uh, and my action is going up what's going to happen and gdm tells me you go to the new place and i ask gdm hey now if i'm in this new place if i go action down where i go so i can build up a tree for different possible actions and see where i go
0: it sounds like i mean in in a regular uh, DRL type of problem. You're also kind of evaluating the expected reward for each of the possible actions, but that yeah. the the notion of expectation is like you're you've lost a lot of information. And so is the idea that by using GANs to project the future state instead of or an expectation, you retain more information.
1: Okay, that's a great point. Is If I run my DRL algorithm to compute this value, what I'm claiming here is that value is can be really really off. It means it can be arbitrarily bad. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if I run deep Q network for let's say game pong for the for for a given situation, the pong agent if I run it if I run deep deep Q network. It gives. It tells me going up gives you return of like a value of like ten. Okay, if I run deep uh, like double deep Q network, which is another algorithm, it gives me five. So it's like the deep Q network, the the value was estimating was like off by factor of five, by another factor by bias of five
2: at least. Mm-hmm.
1: So it's like my point is like any deep RL algorithm can be arbitrated bias and now the question is like if it's biased so it means that as you said it's supposed to tell me what is the future reward right right but if this estimator is like wrong then the question is what we can do so what we can do is like we train a generative model in order to be able to like generate future and if i am able to generate future you know if i am like if i'm a if i have an agent is playing in the playground and there's a ditch somewhere. And if I imagine, if I like, uh, if the, the agent, if I I use this generative model and see what's going to happen in the future, I see if I choose action up, 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 I'm going to fall in that ditch, right? So I do not go. So it's like somehow I'm seeing what's going to happen in the future.
0: Yeah, I, I think maybe the question I'm that I'm asking is what is it about GANs maybe that allows us to be any more accurate looking into the future than the machinery used for you know for predicting the future uh, reward. Okay,
1: so it's like um, so we theoretically show that it's actually uh, exponentially can improve the error in the in the Q function. Okay, so it's theoretically it's like exponential improvement. But uh, practical, I can tell you something. So the way we compute the reward, sorry, the way that we compute the value and return is through the scan factor, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a discount factor. It's like the, the reward I get that current time step worth more than reward I receive in like next 10 time steps, right? right. There's a scan factor. So now if I have, my, if my Q function has a bias of five, okay? And if I am able to do rollout in my, my generative model up to depth of five, up to depth of 20, then the Q value I'm going to use at depth of 20 is going to be the scan factor to the power of 20. The scan factor is less than one. So the power of 20 is going to be super small times that five. So the effect of the bias is not going to appear. So actually this machinery has been used for AlphaGo as well. What AlphaGo does, AlphaGo is like, Runs Monte Carlo Tree Search on the board game for some depth, let's say depth of h, and when it goes to the like uh, leaf node of that tree, so it builds a tree, and then the leaf node of, of that tree use the learned Q value. Okay, if the Q value is biased, since I'm like rolling out for like depth of h, the effect of that bias is gonna exponentially go down. I, I I can imagine. I need to draw a tree and like explain
0: it. <laughs> no, I think but... it, it makes sense. So you the argument is that with the deep Q networks, you are predicting the future reward at a given point based on a, a given action. But by using GANs to project into into the future, what the board is going to look like, you can then discount out. The errors by yeah, uh, exactly. because of the you're predicting further into the into time.
1: That's one thing is like the first part of your sen- the statement. When I use deep reinforcement learning algorithms to compute to see what is the cumulative reward of future at the given point and given action, you said mm-hmm. my statement here is any deep reinforcement learning algorithm you use is error error in this estimation can be arbitrarily wrong. It can be arbitrarily big. So the, actually you think that you are actually learning the, the expected return of that state and action given that that, that uh, specific point, that, that specific action, but I can prove of the show that there are problems that this estimator can be arbitrarily wrong. Okay, So now I'm, I'm saying that if if I had a perfect estimator, there was no need. I mean, there the, the isn't that much of need for having generative models or GANs. But I know that this error is big for like, uh, for deep Q networks, these errors are gigantic. That sometimes like shockingly gigantic. People have studied this bias. We call it the bias in the estimator. People have studied these biases and they observe that these biases are like huge. It's like, Hundreds hundredth of percentage uh, like bigger than the actual value. Mm-hmm. So it means that the, the estimator you get you when you compute the expected return condition on the specific point on the space and the action that estimation can be arbitrary wrong. Okay, So if it's arbitrary wrong you cannot do anything but if it's like wrong but not super wrong the question is can we do anything and one of the answers is like doing uh this uh, generative adversary of research is like if it's wrong, I can build a tree. I can look at the future and I, I can say I want to look at the future and see where I go after like 20 time steps and when I go to ten, at, at the 20 time steps time step, I'm gonna use the, the, this biased uh, value function I learned okay? But the thing is, whatever the value of that 20th step is, I'm going to multiply it by discount factor to the power of like 19 or 20, something like that. So whatever is going to be the, the error, that error is going to be a squashed down exponential in depth, which is the thing I really like to have.
0: Are you using the GAN to predict the state only at 20? Or is it 20, 19, 18, all the way down to 1 and you're all discounting them, I, each of them?
1: I literally build the whole tree and then scan all of them.
0: Okay. And so...
1: In other words, I literally build the model of the world. I literally build the MDP If there exists MDP. Right. I literally build the Markov decision process there.
0: Right. So another way to think about this is like you're basically trying to do what uh, what AlphaGo did with Go, but for you know a game like go you've got like fixed positions and fixed states and while there are you know a lot of them and we can't enumerate them efficiently you know we know what they are given a particular state of the game now and a particular move and we can enumerate a, a tree yeah. for an atari game they're not they're more continuous they're not like these you know very discrete you know moves and positions so how do we you know how might we apply this idea of getting the tree at a bunch of future states? Well, we can use GANs to do that.
2: Okay, there are
1: three points I need to make here. First of all, <laughs> okay. Uh, first of all, is uh, AlphaGo does this tree search on the board game, right? Right. And AlphaGo agent has the board game, right? Has the model, but for Atari's, I do not have the model. Yep. So I need to actually learn. The model. So there is one difference from like this. GAT and AlphaGo mm-hmm. is AlphaGo has actually the, the model of the environment, but for GAT I need to learn the model of the environment.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Second is for uh, Monte Carlo tree search. In order to work, you do not need to have discrete like state space. They also work for continuous like uh, state space. So the guarantee like it holds for the continuous state space. So it doesn't need. To. But the thing which makes it easy for, uh, Atari games is like, state space hypothetically is like, uh, continuous, but the transition is deterministic somehow. It's like, if I play sequence, if I choose action left, I go to left. I'm not mm-hmm. jumping somewhere else. So it's like, that if we assume that this is a, a hypot- hypothesis, if hypothesis hypothesize that for Atari games, the state space is continuous, but still, the transition is deterministic. It's like going from one state to another state. I mean, condition on the current state and current action, I know which state I'm going to end up. Mm-hmm. So, this has it makes the life of the gas easier. But the gas is also able to handle the stochastic state transition. If I am at the state at some frame, if I choose actually one action, if there's a distribution of going to the next state, gas is able to handle that issue as well. But generally, Monte Carlo research or upper confidence bound research. These algorithms they do not require neither deterministic uh, state transition nor uh, finite state space. So they are able to handle continuous one as well.
0: And so you know, one thought that occurs to me is both the question as well as thinking through the implications of the question. You know, this process of generating this tree using GANs, what are the the computational implications of this? And, you know, assuming they're or imagining that they're significant, you know, I, I wonder if maybe it makes sense to do this, like to bootstrap the deep reinforcement learning algorithm. But then once we gain more confidence, switch to something that's more like, uh, you know, the approach we talked about before. You know, the Bayesian deep Q networks or something like that.
1: Sweet. You brought up an interesting question. Is like how how hard is it to do this uh, multi Carlo research? Yeah. How bad this comp- How bad is the computation cost of doing this? The computation cost is bad. <laughs> it, it makes the algorithm slow.
2: Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: And but if I can get order of magnitude sample complexity, then if I'm gonna have a self driving car, I would more compute to be able to not kill anyone. Okay? Mm-hmm. So here the this GATS paper, that gets work adds like a lot of computation cost. Like I think makes it like five times more compared to normal DQN, more normal deep Q network. But the thing is it's p- su- supposed to give you First of all, better performance. Second of all, like better sample complexity. Okay.
2: Hmm. So the so ger-
1: general thing is we use Atari games as a test bed in order to see what our algorithms are doing. We are not using Atari games. Some people they do, but I personally do not use Atari game Atari games as a competition to say, hey, my numbers are better than yours, uh, or like my agent gets better scores than your agent so mine is better I'm not using like uh, Atari games as uh, to do this type of uh, research which is like probably you might not even call it research uh, I use so I try to develop algorithms and test them on Atari games to see what is their behavior yeah sure generative adversaries research are really bad in the in the sense of computation cost but they are supposed to give you better sample complexity, and also better estimation of the value function.
0: Can you define, you know, maybe formally sample complexity for me? Because for you to say that something takes five times as long but has better sample complexity, to me, you know, it sounds like a contradiction in terms.
1: Oh, I see. see. Uh, So in reinforcement learning, there are like many components that you might be interested. One is like, how much like wall clock hours you need to spend to find a good policy. Yep. Okay. So in this study, you don't care how many, how many times you interact with the environment. You can have form of CPUs and GPUs. All of them are playing games and like they just give all the feedbacks to you and you come up with a better algorithm. So if you just care about wall clock time, you don't care about the sample complexity. You just want to get to high performance in less number of hours of your wall clock.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: This study is about just engineering a study. It's just about computation. So how much time you want to spend per day to be able to learn a better policy. This is an interesting line of study, but it's not my specialty and I'm not, not focusing on this one. There is another one is. So now there's another one is like says what objective function for DRL algorithms I can define such that I get the best policy and also get best, not best more reasonable policy and also reasonable value estimation, okay? So there's a lot, another line of study that people have done a lot of research on it to come up with a better cost function or objective function dqn uses the most naive uh, objective function because the goal of deep q network paper was like hey to show that it's feasible and it's possible to outperform human or be able to run something on a target. so there's another line of research tries to come up with a better objective function in order to estimate better policy and also estimate better uh, value function even in this case you don't care about the number of in this setting, you don't care about the. Uh, uh, in the extreme case of this this setting, you don't care about computation cost, and also you don't care that much about the sample complexity. So you are like you the people run the algorithm algorithms for like like billions of time steps. Okay, but there is another third line, which is the the most interesting part for me. Is like, can I get the same performance and stuff in one billion times of interaction with environment in like one million time steps? Mm-hmm. So one million times a second is like, literally, I'm gonna, so if I have two kids, they play in Atari and they are playing that, that game, I just see which one is learning faster. By learning faster, it means that the, the amount of hours they put to play game. If one kid is playing that game, like, like from eight in the morning to nine at night and then does better than the other play, other kid, which plays the eight, one hour per day, then I just the way I compare the smartness of these two kids somehow might be like how many hours they played exactly the game how many times how many hours they interact with them with the game right how many times they press up and down mm-hmm. this is going to be the notion of some type of complexity how many times my RL agent like interacted with the environment in order to to get to the
0: ah, right, right, optimal right. policy so in other words, in this method, you may take five times as long to figure out each step on a wall clock, but yes. uh, ultimately, you're able to converge to a better policy taking less steps.
1: Less steps
0: in the game. In the game, right? right
1: Which right. is actually the, the main goal of reinforcement learning. Is like when I deploy reinforcement learning for like autonomous vehicles, I. I would rather to use the whole AWS like compute to do not kill anyone, right? Right. So I'm, I, one concern is for sure compute, compute, but main concern is com- like developing a better algorithm which has less number of sample, sam- samples required to come up with the optimal behavior. Mm-hmm. So this is like notion of sample complexity for this setting. I'm not using the exact theoretical notion because the exact theoretical notion has another meaning, but here somehow is like how many samples I need to so if deep Q network solves a game in 200 million samples, I mean get some performance in 200 million samples. Am I able to reach the same performance in in less than one million time steps? In less than one million samples, the answer in the B, the Bayesian deep Q network paper is like for some games yes, you can you can. Then you reduce the number of inter- interaction you need to make with the environment 100 times less in order to get to the same performance as deep Q network was getting after 200 million samples. This is the notion of sample complexity, and this is the main uh, part of theoretical analysis in like, uh, in reinforcement learning in the theory land that we mainly care about. to reduce the number of samples we need in order to get to the Nice and uh, useful and reasonable performance.
0: And so, along the same lines, can you directly compare the sample efficiency of? You said you know deep Q might be two billion Bayesian. You know, might be one billion. What if you throw in the GANs the or GATs uh, approach? Can you compare it directly in that same kind of metric?
1: Uh yeah, of course. I can I can definitely uh, uh comparing the same metric. I have like I have compared in just uh for one game in the in the paper. But as I said, since like uh the competition complexity of gas is a bit high, it's a bit beyond the power of academic research labs to do massive experiments. So if I was a deep mind I would definitely have all the game. <laughs> <laughs> but since I am, like, using my advisors, like, uh, AWS credit, probably I'd rather not burn the whole, the GPU clusters we have just for this board. So I just try to show for a few games.
0: Uh, but for those few games, like, how did it compare to the other couple of methods? Compared to DeepQ Network,
1: uh, for that game we tried, it reduced the sample complexity by half, like, it. Converse to the same performance is like half of the samples required for a deep Q network. But in order to make a empirical claim, definitely we need to try on more than for sure one game. Right. So we are, we are trying to come up with uh, more experiments for more gains and uh, to come up with a better analysis, better empirical analysis. We are not uh, going to compare against BDQN or Bayesian deep Q network because the, this gap has, is deploying DeepQ network inside of it. So I'm so because I have DeepQ network and I'm building something on the top of DeepQ network. I'm gonna compare against DeepQ network. I could use Bayesian DeepQ network and use GATs on the top of that, which is totally like this one line change in the code. I could build the GATs on top of Bayesian DeepQ network and compare against Bayesian DeepQ network. This comparison is meaningful. But if I compare GATs with Deep Q network and compare it with the Bayesian one, it's not that reasonable a comparison because we are comparing to somehow orthogonal effects.
0: You gave the example. You, you said that like for a given game, you would expect that the Bayesian Deep Q networks is roughly half the number of samples as regular Deep Q networks. No,
1: no, it's like 100 times some games better.
0: Uh, so a hundred, hundred oh, X better, and so it was this that is the GATs that was half.
1: Yeah, for one game, for, for, so for one I,
0: right for the one game that you need to you run tested. more
1: games. But I'm just saying something that Bayesian Deep Q Network just we studied to come with a better exploration strategy for deep reinforcement learning problems. At GATS we are coming we came up with the algorithm to reduce the error and bias in the learned yeah. value function. So these are kind of orthogonal effects. So the thing is I'm not gonna compare these two together because they are these are two studies of two orthogonal things and, and I personally don't care that much which one does better because both of them can be combined together and come up with new algorithms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these okay. are like we are in in deep reinforcement learning. We are like far from claiming that we can use them in real world. So what we do, we are now we hold the, like majority of the field. We are trying to study and come up with better and better algorithms. And these are algorithms are like studying because reinforcement learning like and world is like too big, and we need to do a lot of study to come up with. To study different effects of different components in the setting. So we are not competing. Like if, like we, in the vision community, we have ImageNet. Everyone tries on ImageNet and, uh, the, and compare the, the results of one algorithm to another one. But here we are not doing. I mean, many people, they do compare their numbers, but I personally do not do compare my numbers to say this is better than the other. We are just studying the effects of different uh, d- different components in the environment, and we are we are just in the baby stage of like reinforcement learning. You are right. like getting things to see what 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 each change would do.
0: Yeah.
1: like it's like we are very very far from to get to the real competition to say this algorithm is better than the other one.
0: So in other words, you're, you know, it's just kind of exploring ideas about, you know, what levers we even have available to us to tweak if we cared about maximizing performance. But we're so early on, there's really nothing to maximize performance against. There's no image net or something that we're, you know, someone who's building a a self-driving car. You know, they might want to take all of these different approaches and, you know, apply them together, but that's a lot I of work and that's it. their issue, right?
1: Yeah, they're going to combine everything together. You can imagine, like, like coming up with better, like, uh, exploration strategy, like console sampling, it, it's obvious that someone should have tried this one, like, five years ago, right? Mm-hmm but no one has tried it because we are like very, very, like this is a fundamental component in the, in the reinforcement learning algorithms, right? The exploration is like the, one of the most important, and actually I can say even main component of the, the reinforcement learning algorithms, but no one has tried this one. Why? Because we are in the early stages. Mm-hmm. We are still don't know and don't get to know like what are the fundamental components of the algorithm is. Like for ImageNet, we know mainly that we need to have these convolution layers, we need to have like softmax output, we can use cross-entropic loss. These are the common thing that everyone uses, and it works very well. But in reinforcement learning, we don't have these all components all together. We don't know what is the best way of doing exploration and exploitation together. We don't know what is the best function approximation we should use. We don't know what is the best memory we should use. We don't know, we don't, know like we are like really, really far from making right. to We're just really, in the, even before the baby stage, we are not even got born. Right. We were not born yet.
0: Awesome. Well, Kemyar, you've been very, very generous with your time. Thanks so much for taking the time to uh, yeah, chat so with me about fun. all this stuff. It was a lot of fun and uh, I think folks will uh, enjoy this and learn a lot. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you. Have a great day.
0: All right, everyone, that's our show for today. For more information on Kamyar or any of the topics covered in this episode, head over to twimlai.com slash talk 177. If you're a fan of the podcast, we'd like to encourage you to visit your Apple or Google podcast app and leave us a five-star rating and review. Your reviews help inspire us to create more and better content, and they help new listeners find the show. As always, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.